Section thirty five, part one of Chapter nine of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blexton. Book one, Chapter nine, part one. Chapter the ninth of Subordinate Magistrates. In a former chapter of these commentaries, we distinguished magistrates into two kinds supreme, or those in whom the sovereign power of the state resides, and subordinate, or those who act in an inferior secondary sphere. We have hitherto considered the former kind only, namely, the supreme legislative power or parliament, and the supreme executive power, which is the king, and are now to proceed to inquire into the rights and duties of the principal subordinate magistrates. And herein we are not to investigate the powers and duties of His Majesty's great officers of state, the Lord Treasurer, Lord Chamberlain, the Principal Secretaries, or the like, because I do not know that they are in that capacity in any considerable degree the objects of our laws, or have any very important share of magistracy conferred upon them, except that the Secretaries of State are allowed the power of commitment, in order to bring offenders to trial. Neither shall I here treat of the office and authority of the Lord Chancellor, or the other judges of the superior courts of justice, because they will find a more proper place in the third part of these commentaries. Nor shall I enter into any minute disquisitions, with regard to the right and dignities of mayors and aldermen, or other magistrates of particular corporations, because these are mere private and strictly municipal rights, depending entirely upon the domestic constitution of their respective franchises. But the magistrates and officers, whose rights and duties it will be proper in this chapter to consider, are such as are generally in use and have a jurisdiction and authority dispersed throughout the kingdom, which are, principally, sheriffs, coroners, justices of the peace, constables, surveyors of highways, and overseers of the poor. In treating all of which I shall inquire into, first, their antiquity and original, next, the manner in which they are appointed and may be removed, and lastly, their rights and duties. And first, of sheriffs. 1. The sheriff is an officer of very great antiquity in this kingdom, his name being derived from two Saxon words, Shire Reeve, the bailiff or officer of the shire. He is called in Latin vice comes, as being the deputy of the earl or comes, to whom the custody of the shire is said to have been committed at the first division of this kingdom into counties. But the earls, in process of time, by reason of their high employment and attendance on the king's person, not being able to transact the business of the county, were delivered of that burden, reserving to themselves the honour, but the labour was laid on the sheriff. So that now the sheriff does all the king's business in the county, and though he still be called vice-combs, yet he is entirely independent of, and not subject to the earl, the king by his letters patent committing custodium comitatus to the sheriff, and him alone. Sheriffs were formerly chosen by the inhabitants of the several counties, in confirmation of which it was ordained by statute twenty eighth edward i c eight that the people should have election of sheriffs in every shire where the shrievality is not of inheritance for anciently in some counties particularly on the borders the sheriffs were hereditary as i apprehend they are in scotland and in the county of westmoreland to this day and the city of london has also the inheritance of the shrievality of middlesex vested in their body by charter the reason of these popular elections is assigned in the same statute, c. 13, that the commons might choose such as would not be a burden to them. 
and herein appears plainly a strong trace of the democratical part of our Constitution, in which form of government it is an indispensable requisite that the people should choose their own magistrates. This election was in all probability not absolutely vested in the commons, but required the royal approbation. For in the Gothic constitution the judges of their county courts, which office is executed by our sheriff, were elected by the people, but confirmed by the king, and the form of their election was thus managed. The people, or incoli territori, chose twelve electors, and they nominated three persons, ex quibus rex unum confirmabat. But, with us in England, these popular elections, growing tumultuous, were put an end to by the statute Ninth Edward the Second, Statute Two, which enacted that the sheriffs should from thenceforth be assigned by the Lord Chancellor, Treasurer, and the judges, as being persons in whom the same trust might with confidence be reposed. By statutes Fourteenth Edward the Third, C seven, and Twenty third Henry the Sixth, C eight, the Chancellor, Treasurer, Chief Justices, and Chief Barons are to make this election, and that on the morrow of all souls in the exchequer. But the custom is, and has been, at least ever since the time of Fortescue, who was chief judge and chancellor to Henry the Sixth, that all judges, and certain other great officers, meet in the exchequer chamber on the morrow of all souls, yearly, which day is now altered to the morrow of St. Martin by the act for abbreviating Michaelmas term, and then and there nominate three persons to the king, who afterwards appoint one of them to be sheriff. This custom, of the twelve judges nominating three persons, seems borrowed from the Gothic constitution before mentioned, with this difference, that among the Goths the twelve nominors were first elected by the people themselves. And this usage of ours at its first introduction, I am apt to believe, was founded upon some statute, though not now to be found among our printed laws. First, because it is materially different from the directions of all the statutes before mentioned, which it is hard to conceive that the judges would have countenanced by their concurrence, or that Fortescue would have inserted in his book, unless by the authority of some statute, and also because a statute is expressly referred to in the record which Sir Edward Coke tells us he transcribed from the council book of 3rd March, 4th Henry the Sixth, and which is in substance as follows. The king had of his own authority appointed a man sheriff of Lincolnshire, which office he refused to take upon him, whereupon the opinions of the judges were taken, what should be done in this behalf. And the two chief justices, Sir John Fortescue and Sir Prissett, delivered the unanimous opinion of them all, that the king did an error when he made a person sheriff, that was not chosen and presented to him according to the statute, that the person refusing was liable to no fine for disobedience, as if he had been one of the three persons chosen according to the tenor of the statute, that they would advise the king to have recourse to the three persons that were chosen according to the statute, or that some other thrifty man be entreated to occupy the office for this year, and that the next year, to eschew such inconveniences, the order of the statute in this behalf be observed. But, notwithstanding this unanimous resolution of all the judges of England, thus entered in the council-book, some of our writers have affirmed that the king, by his prerogative, may name whom he pleases to be sheriff, whether chosen by the judges or no. This is grounded on a very particular case in the fifth year of Queen Elizabeth, when, by reason of the plague, there was no Michaelmas term kept at Westminster, so that the judges could not meet there in Crestino and Amarum to nominate the sheriffs, whereupon the Queen named them herself, without such previous assembly, appointing for the most part one of the two remaining in the last year's list. And this case, 
thus circumstanced, is the only precedent in our books for the making these extraordinary sheriffs. It is true, the reporter adds, that it was held that the Queen, by her prerogative, might make a sheriff without the election of the judges, non obstantu aliquo statutum in contrarium, but the doctrine of non obstantes, which sets the prerogative above the laws, was effectually demolished by the Bill of Rights of the Revolution, and abdicated Westminster Hall when King James abdicated the kingdom. So that the sheriffs cannot now be legally appointed, otherwise than according to the known and established law. Sheriffs, by virtue of several old statutes, are to continue in their office no longer than one year, and yet it hath been said that a sheriff may be appointed durante beno placito, or during the king's pleasure, and so is the form of the royal writ. Therefore, till a new sheriff be named, his office cannot be determined, unless by his own death, or the demise of the king, in which last case it was usual for the successor to send a new writ to the old sheriff, but now, by statute 1st Anne, statute 1, c. 8, all officers appointed by the preceding king may hold their offices for six months after the king's demise, unless sooner displaced by the successor. We may farther observe that by statute 1st Richard II, c. 11, no man that has served the office of sheriff for one year can be compelled to serve the same again within three years. We shall find it is of the utmost importance to have the sheriff appointed according to law, when we consider his power and duty. These are either as a judge, as the keeper of the king's peace, as a ministerial officer of the superior courts of justice, or as the king's bailiff. In his judicial capacity he is to hear and determine all cases of forty shillings value and under, in his county court, of which more in its proper place, and he has also judicial power in diverse other civil cases. He is likewise to decide the election of knights of the shire, subject to the control of the House of Commons, of coroners, and of verderers, to judge of the qualification of voters, and to return such as he shall determine to be duly elected. As the keeper of the king's peace, both by common law and special commission, he is the first man in the county, and superior in rank to any nobleman therein, during his office. He may apprehend and commit to prison all persons who break the peace, or attempt to break it, and may bind any one in recognizance to keep the king's peace. He may, and is bound ex officio, to pursue and take all traitors, murderers, felons, and other misdoers, and commit them to jail for safe custody. He also is to defend his county against any of the king's enemies when they come into the land, and for this purpose, as well as for keeping the peace and pursuing felons, he may command all the people of his county to attend him, which is called the posse comitatus, or power of the county, which summons every person above fifteen years old, and under degree of a peer, is bound to attend upon warning, under pain of fine and imprisonment. But though the sheriff is thus principal conservator of the peace of his county, yet, by the express direction of the great charter, he, together with the constable, coroner, and certain other officers of the king, are forbidden to hold any pleas of the crown, or, in other words, to try any criminal offence. For it would be highly unbecoming that the executioners of justice should also be the judges, should impose, as well as levy, fines and immersements, should one day condemn a man to death, and personally execute him the next. Neither may he act as an ordinary justice of the peace during the time of his office, for this would be equally inconsistent, he being in many respects the servant of the justices. In his ministerial capacity the sheriff is bound to execute all process issuing from the king's courts of justice. In the commencement of civil causes he is to serve the writ, to arrest and to take bail, when the cause comes to trial, he must summon and return the jury, 
when it is determined, he must see the judgment of the court carried into execution. In criminal matters, he also arrests and imprisons, he returns the jury, he has the custody of the delinquent, and he executes the sentence of the court, though it extend to death itself. As the king's bailiff, it is his business to preserve the rights of the king within his bailiwick, for so his county is frequently called in the writs, a word introduced by the princes of the Norman line, in imitation of the French, whose territory is divided into bailiwicks, as that of England into counties. He must seize to the king's use all lands devolved to the crown by attainer or a sheet, he must levy all fines and forfeitures, must seize and keep all waifs, wrecks, estrays, and the like, unless they be granted to some subject, and must also collect the king's rents within his bailiwick, if commanded by process from the exchequer. To execute these various offices, the sheriff has under him many inferior officers, and under sheriff, bailiffs, and jailers, who must neither buy, sell, nor farm their offices, on forfeiture of five hundred pounds. The under-sheriff usually performs all the duties of the office, a very few only excepted, where the personal presence of the high sheriff is necessary. But no under-sheriff shall abide in his office above one year, and if he does, by statute 23rd Henry the Sixth, C. 8, he forfeits two hundred pounds. A very large penalty in those early days. And no under-sheriff or sheriff's officer shall practice as an attorney during the time he continues in such office, for this would be a great inlet to partiality and depression. But these salutary regulations are shamefully evaded, by practising in the names of other attorneys, and putting in sham deputies by way of nominal under-sheriffs, by reason of which, says Dalton, the under-sheriffs and bailiffs do grow so cunning in their several places, that they are able to deceive, and it may be well feared that many of them do deceive, both the king, the high sheriff, and the county. Bailiffs, or sheriff's officers, are either bailiffs of hundreds or special bailiffs. Bailiffs of hundreds are appointed over those respective districts by the sheriffs, to collect fines therein, to summon juries, to attend the judges and justices at the assizes, and quarter sessions, and also to execute writs and process in the several hundreds. But as these are generally plain men, and not thoroughly skilful in this latter part of their office, that of serving writs, and making arrests and executions, it is now usual to join special bailiffs with them, who are generally mean persons employed by the sheriffs on account of their adroitness and dexterity in hunting and seizing their prey. The sheriff being answerable for the misdemeanors of these bailiffs, they are therefore usually bound in a bond for the execution of their office, and thence are called bound bailiffs, which the common people have corrupted into a much more homely appellation. Jailers are also the servants of the sheriff, and he must be responsible for their conduct. Their business is to keep safely all such persons as are committed to them by lawful warrant, and if they suffer any such to escape, the sheriff shall answer it to the king, if it be a criminal matter, or in a civil case to the party injured. And to this end the sheriff must have land sufficient within the county to answer the king and his people. The abuses of jailers, and sheriff's officers, toward the unfortunate persons in their custody, are well restrained and guarded against by statute 32nd George II, c. 28. The vast expense which custom had introduced in serving the office of high sheriff was grown such a burden to the subject, that it was enacted, by statute 13th and 14th Charles II, c. 21, that no sheriff should keep any table at the assizes, except for his own family, or give any presents to the judges or their servants, or have more than forty men in livery, yet, for the sake of safety and decency, he may not have less than twenty men in England and twelve in Wales, 
upon forfeiture, in any of these cases, of two hundred pounds. The coroner's is also a very ancient office at the common law. He is called coroner, coronator, because he hath principally to do with pleas of the crown, or such wherein the king is more immediately concerned. And in this light the Lord Chief Justice of the King's Bench is the principal coroner in the kingdom, and may, if he pleases, exercise the jurisdiction of a coroner in any part of the realm. But there are also particular coroners for every county of England, usually four, but sometimes six, and sometimes fewer. This officer is of equal antiquity with the sheriff, and was ordained together with him to keep the peace, when the earls gave up the wardship of the county. He is still chosen by all the freeholders in the county court, as by the policy of our ancient laws the sheriffs and conservatives of the peace and all other officers were, who were concerned in matters that affected the liberty of the people, and as verderers of the forest still are, those whose business it is to stand between the prerogative and the subject in the execution of the forest laws. For this purpose there is a writ at common law, de coronator elegendo, in which it is expressly commanded that the sheriff, quad tellum illigi faciat, qui melius esciat, e velit e pasit officio illi entandere. And in order to effect this, the more surely, it was enacted by the statute of Westminster one, one, that none but lawful and discreet knights should be chosen. But it seems it is now sufficient if a man have lands enough to be made a knight, whether he be really knighted or not, and there was an instance in the fifth Edward the third of a man being removed from this office because he was only a merchant. The coroner ought also to have a state sufficient to maintain the dignity of his office, and answer any fines that may be set upon him for his misdemeanour, and if he have not enough to answer, his fine shall be levied on the county, as a punishment for electing an insufficient officer. Now, indeed, through the culpable neglect of gentlemen of property, this office has been suffered to fall into disrepute, and to get into low and indigent hands, so that although formerly no coroner would condescend to be paid for serving his country, and they were, by the aforesaid statute of Westminster one, expressly forbidden to take a reward, under pain of great forfeiture to the king. Yet for many years past they have only desired to be chosen for the sake of their perquisites, being allowed fees for their attendance by the statute third Henry the seventh c one, which Sir Edward Coke complains of heavily, though they have since his time been much enlarged. The coroner is chosen for life, but may be removed, either by being made sheriff or chosen verderer, which are offices incompatible with the other, or by the king's writ de coronator exorando, for a cause to be therein assigned, as that he is engaged in other business, is incapacitated by years or sickness, hath not a sufficient estate in the county, or lives in an inconvenient part of it. And by the statute twenty fifth George the second c twenty nine extortion neglect or misbehaviour are also made causes of removal. The offices and power of a coroner are also like those of sheriff, either judicial or ministerial, but principally judicial. This is in great measure ascertained by the statute fourth Edward I de officio coronatoris, and consists first in inquiring when any person is slain or dies suddenly concerning the manner of his death and this must be supervisum corporatus, for if the body be not found, the coroner cannot sit. He must also sit at the very place where the death happened, and his inquiry is made by a jury from four, five, or six of the neighbouring towns, over whom he is to preside. If any be found guilty by this inquest of murder, he is to commit to prison for farther trial, and is also to inquire concerning their lands, goods, and chattels, which are forfeited thereby. 
but whether it be murder or not, he must inquire whether any deodand has accrued to the king, or the lord of the franchise, by this death, and must certify the whole of this inquisition to the court of the king's bench, or the next assizes. Another branch of his office is to inquire concerning shipwrecks, and certify whether wreck or not, and who is in possession of the goods. Concerning treasure-trove, he is also to inquire who were the finders, and where it is, and whether any one be suspected of having found and concealed a treasure. And that may be well perceived, saith the old statute of Edward I, where one liveth riotously, haunting taverns, and hath done so of a long time, whereupon he might be attached, and held to bail, upon this suspicion only. The ministerial office of the coroner is only as the sheriff's substitute, for when just exception can be taken to the sheriff, for suspicion of partiality, as that he is interested in the suit, or of kindred to either plaintiff or defendant, the process must then be awarded to the coroner, instead of the sheriff, for execution of the king's writs. End of section 35